Shopify grows your business no matter how far or big you grow. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Whether you're selling your fans' next favorite shirt or an exclusive piece of podcast merch, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash income, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash income now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Hi, everyone. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Welcome to Yoga Birth Babies, a podcast produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. We will be diving into everything prenatal yoga, birth, and baby-related, hoping to inspire, educate, and empower you through your journey into motherhood. Thank you for listening. Hi, I'm Deb Flaschenberg. I'm your host for Yoga Birth Babies. And today we're having a conversation about raising anti-racist kids and the steps parents can take to start important conversations and make change. And I am beyond excited to be having this conversation with Dr. Beverly Daniel Tatum. She's a clinical psychologist widely known for both her expertise on race relations and is a thought leader in higher education. The author of several books, including the bestseller, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria and Other Conversations About Race, which is in its 20th anniversary edition, and the book, Can We Talk About Race and Other Conversations in an Era of School Resegregation. It was such a thrill to speak with Dr. Tatum. I was very open, very transparent that I want to make sure that I am not going to be someone that doesn't make change. I want to make sure that I am an ally, I'm a disruptor, and that my kids can follow in that. We don't want to sit idly by and be complacent. And it was just such a great conversation that Dr. Tatum gave, first of all, really funny stories to listen to. She, I really enjoyed that. But she really gave some solid strategies for talking to kids of all age, from toddlers up to older children, and really knowing how how to approach the conversations and doing it in a way that's not going to turn kids off. You know how sometimes if you try to have a conversation with kids, they can be like, I've heard enough or they tune them out. She was just really open and honest about how we can all make change to stop systemic racism in so many levels of our of our communities. So I hope you enjoy that conversation. But before we get to that, I want to thank everyone that has left a rating and review for the podcast. It helps people find us. And I want to also thank everyone that continues to show up for the community. I've been getting a ton of emails saying, you know, when are you going to open up again? And I have to be honest, I have no idea when we'll open up the actual PYC yoga studio. Right now in New York, we're still not allowed to have gyms or yoga studios or Pilates studios open. But what we have done when we're faced with this obstacle that we can't meet in person is we've expanded our online offerings. We have something for you every single day, a yoga class, some sort of workshop, because no matter what's going on in the outside world, these babies are still coming. Families are still needing support and we're continuing to show up and What's really beautiful is that the community keeps growing far beyond the walls of New York. It keeps growing and people keep showing up to support each other. So I want to thank all the community members and invite those that haven't had a chance to jump into a class. Please do so. Lastly, teacher training. We're starting in a couple weeks, the early fall teacher training. I'm incredibly excited. We have a few spots left in the late fall. And then as soon as we get the approval from Yoga Alliance to continue after January for online classes, online teacher training, I'll get those dates up. We used to travel from city to city, Caprice and I, and teach our teacher training. But with that put aside... 
we're still showing up to teach those hungry for this information and bring it back to your communities. And it's exciting because no longer are we traveling, but we just are opening up the space and we are really, we're reaching people from other countries that are, they're showing up and learning from each other. So it's, it's really exciting. It's really um, wonderful to see the learning expanding. Okay. So we're going to take a super quick break and when we come back, please enjoy Dr. Beverly Tatum and all of her amazing wisdom. Hi, Dr. Tatum. I am so excited to grab a little of your time. I know your time is very valuable and this is such a huge topic we're going to cover. So thank you. Thank you for coming on my podcast. Happy to be with you. So big topic, parents, (laughs) anti-racism. I've been reading your stuff. Um, It's pretty incredible. So I guess let's start with just a little bit about yourself and what inspired you to write your book, Why All the Black Kids Are Sitting Together in the Cafeteria. Sure. Well, I am a psychologist by training, and I spent many years uh, as a professor of psychology before I became a college president. But I wrote my book during the time that I was teaching originally back in the 90s. I was teaching at Mount Holyoke College, a course on the psychology of racism. And in 1997, I wrote Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria and Other Conversations About Race, really because as a consequence of teaching that class, there were certain questions that came up over and over again And I wanted to speak to not only the questions that my students had, but also the questions that parents and teachers and other people who would come to the workshops I was offering would ask me. So that was really my intention. When I wrote that book in 97, of course, a lot of people read it and that was great. But fast forward 20 years in 2017, it seemed to me it needed to be updated for lots of reasons uh, about things that had changed in the last 20 years. So in 2017, I gave it a refresh, and so it's the new version that I hope people will read because it's quite more up-to-date than the original. Yeah, a lot of things certainly changed in the 20 years. I ordered the new version, although now I actually want to see if I can get the old version and, and do a little comparison. That would be that'd be interesting. So I think let's start with some definitions. I was watching an interview that you gave based on your book. Um, it was a couple of years ago, I believe the interview was, and I loved that the interviewer asked just to, we can all be on the same page. And what I thought was interesting is you were defining the difference between prejudice prejudice and racism. So let's start with that. Sure. And that's a common source of confusion because people often use those terms interchangeably. But really, prejudice has to do with attitudes. Um, Typically, we think of prejudice as a negative attitude, though, of course, you could be positively prejudiced towards something. But when we think about racial prejudice, we think about the fact that people have attitudes often based on limited information, typically stereotypes or other negative depictions of one group or another, and on the basis of that misinformation, develop negative attitudes toward a group. Of course, when you act on those prejudices, when you discriminate against someone, that can be racist behavior, but racism is really a system, uh, a system of advantage based on race. It is made up not just of individual attitudes, but also policies and practices that have been institutionalized in our society through our education system, our economic system, criminal justice systems, healthcare systems. Um, so many places we see the manifestation of built-in um, assumptions about the assumed superiority of one group, in the case of the U.S., talking about the superiority of white people, the assumed superiority, and the assumed inferiority of people of color. So when those systems are in place, they are reinforced by people's attitudes. But one of the reasons we need to make a distinction between prejudice and racism is that the racism can be perpetuated even if people don't have negative attitudes. Simply going along with business as usual can reinforce the racism in our society even if you don't feel any particular negative feelings toward a one group or another. And that's one of the things that really sparked me to reach out and have this conversation is I think that 
if we if we're trying to have anti-racism, we need to recognize that what actions might we be taking that are that's not helping the situation, especially as parents. You know, I was thinking about um, my son; he's nine, and his best friend happens to be black, and we were talking about that. And I was trying to talk about some of the advantages that my son has that his friend might not, and that it's not fair that we need that he and he wasn't even aware of it, and and I guess maybe at nine, maybe he's not. And I feel like as a parent, it's my responsibility to be more aware. And then maybe he can take steps, you know, that generation coming up so that we don't have such discrimination and, and racism. Does that make any sense? Oh, it makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense. I mean, you can't fix something if you're not aware of it, right? right? You have to, um, you have to have awareness of a problem before you can solve it. So, and talking to children about fairness and unfairness in our society is certainly a good place to start. So how about, let's keep going on some definitions and I'm going to dive into some other questions. How would you define anti-racism? So that's a great question. And it's a term we're hearing a lot about. It's a very popular term we're hearing right now, anti-racism, but it's not a new term. And it really goes back to understanding what racism is. So if we know that um, racism is a system, a system of advantage put in place and reinforced by the policies and practices that are built into our society, the um, anti-racism is really working against those systems, interrupting those systems. I have an image in my book, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria, that I like to use and many people find helpful thinking about this. And I ask people to imagine a moving walkway like you might find at the airport, Mm -hmm. you know, going from one terminal to the next. And if you think of that moving walkway as the the system, that sort of well-oiled machine of those racist policies and practices that have been part of our country for so long, so much so that we don't even notice them sometimes. And imagine yourself just standing on that moving walkway. You're being carried along without any effort of your own, but nonetheless, it is carrying you along. There's some people who actively embrace a racist ideology. We might call them white supremacists or white nationalists. And those folks, we might think of those folks as the people who are on the moving walkway, walking fast, trying to get to that destination, that sort of racial ideology, uh, trying to get to that destination quickly, moving fast. And then there are other people, and we could call those folks actively racist. They're actively moving, they're taking action, trying to reinforce a racist system. But there are other people, I find these people at the airport all the time, who are just standing on the walkway. They're, you know, not walking, they're just waiting to be delivered to their destination. And that passivity relative to racism, we could call that passive racism. They're not taking action. They're not doing anything to make it move faster, but they're not interrupting the process. They're just being carried along. And I think a lot of people will say, well, if I'm not doing anything, if I'm not calling somebody a name, if I'm not actively discriminating, then I am not racist. But what I think is the important point here is that even if you're not doing anything, you're still participating in that racist system simply by standing still. Mm -hmm. The only way to interrupt it is to be actively moving in the opposite direction. Let's imagine you said, I don't want to go to that racist destination. I don't want to participate in this process. You could turn around. And if you turned around but didn't move, you would still be carried along. Now you're just traveling backwards. You don't see where you're going, but you're still headed there. The only people who can interrupt this process are those who are actively walking in the opposite direction, actively working against those policies, actively trying to change them. And it's the active nature um, of the work that makes it anti-racist. Just saying, you know, silence is complicity, in other words. If you don't want to go where it's taking us, you have to be doing something intentional to interrupt the process. 
First of all, I love the image. I totally was able to follow that and it made complete sense. And that's also why I'm hoping people are listening to this and what inspired me to reach out to you is so that we can walk backwards, that we can be the people that are like, I, I'm, I don't want to go there. I don't want, and I want the next generation to have the tools as well to disrupt. So I'm, this is exciting. So if we're going to keep going with definitions, let's talk about white privilege. Cause I actually, I tried to describe it to my son. I think I got it, but I feel like, I feel like I could use some help as well. Sure. Well, this is a concept that many white people struggle with in particular. Um, the idea of privilege in general is a hard concept for some folks because by its very definition, these are benefits that come to you automatically because of your group membership. So when we're talking about white privilege, we're talking about the benefits that come to white people without even asking for them. And those benefits might be things like seeing yourself represented on television a lot. Um, and if that doesn't feel like a benefit, ask somebody who doesn't see themselves and they'll mm -hmm. say, you know, I wish I did see my experience represented in the media more often, more positively. Um, but that's something that, you know, white people can take for granted because they're often the center of the story, so to speak. Um, we can think about the experience of, you know, walking into a store that's and shopping. That's the example I gave. I said, if he, and I'm not going to say his best friend's name, but I said, if you and your friend walked into a store, you may not be suspected of something, but your friend may be, even though neither of you have done anything wrong. And that is the privilege of being a white boy. And he, I think he kind of got that. It's so I'm yes. glad that you're using that. Okay. Yeah, no, that's a very common one. I mean, just the the assumed innocence of whiteness. So, you know, you you might in fact be a white person intending to shoplift, but that's not what people are going to assume about you when you walk into the store. Um, you could be a black person with no intention of shoplifting, ready to purchase something with, you know, your credit card in your pocket and looking for an opportunity to purchase the thing you want, but someone is constantly following you and making you feel like you're an assumed criminal. Um, and so that difference of experience is what privilege is about. For some people, and this is a very graphic example, but for some people, just thinking about George Floyd, right, and the murder of George Floyd under that police officer's knee, have we ever seen a white person in that situation? I never have. I don't think but, so. But we, you know, we can all think of many examples of seeing black people at the abusive end of a police officer's gun or baton, or in this case, knee. And the concern that that might happen to you is something that most black people will think about, if not for themselves, maybe for their children, their teenage boys, their husbands, their fathers. Um, and certainly women can be the victims as well. It's not typically something that white people are worried about. Not having to be concerned about that is a privilege. But I have heard uh, a scholar whose um, work I admire use a different term, and I think this is another way of thinking about it. He, instead of using white privilege, um, this scholar, whose name is Nolan Cabrera, uses the term white immunity. Hmm. And I think what's helpful there is that, you know, you might not feel like you've been privileged. You know, you didn't, you weren't born with the silver spoon in your mouth. You were but even if you grew up in a very difficult circumstance as a white person, you still carry with you the benefit of the doubt, the immunity from suspicion that um, most white people experience as they go through the world. I really, I, I like that. That makes a lot of sense. So because we're talking about parents and children, let's start talking about at what age do children start to notice the difference between race? Because I know we can't say, oh, you know, everyone's colorblind because we know that's not true. And I think it's a right. bit of a disservice to society and children to assume that. It is one, it's not true, and it is a disservice, and we can talk about why that might be. But certainly in terms of your original question, when do children start to notice? Um, we know that even babies notice physical difference. As early as six months, you can tell by how long a child is staring at an, a person's face. Um, they tend to stare longer at faces that are familiar, less likely to stare at faces that are unfamiliar. 
um, that kids are perceiving difference, right? We can tell just from eye-tracking behavior that we know that kids can perceive difference. But when they start to talk, you know, around age two, um, and certainly by preschool, you know, let's say age three, you can hear children expressing attitudes that reflect the wider society. Um, you can hear children expressing a preference for the light doll versus a dark doll. You can hear uh, children saying to one another, oh, you can't play here because you're black, or you can't do this because you're a girl. I mean, those kinds of observations and starting to understand social roles and relative um, value in terms of, you know, the racial hierarchy is something that children start to pick up pretty quickly. So it's not uncommon to hear those kinds of observations being made by three and four-year-olds. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, would you mind sharing the story of your son and the chocolate milk? Sure. (laughs) All right, we'll take a quick break. When we come back, we'll, we'll listen to that story. Our family has grown. Welcome to the world, Hannah baby. Introducing a new collection, Hannah Soft, made with Tencel. It's so breathable, with stretchy comfort for all of baby's first moments. And it's cool and gentle on their skin all year round. Entrusted Hannah quality for your most precious gift. Hannah Soft, made to last. Shop now at hannahanderson.com. Okay, we are back. So I think it was just, I heard you now um, say this story a couple times, and it really hits home. And it talks about how, again, it's a disservice to society and our children to assume that kids are colored blind. So if you don't mind sharing the story of your son and the chocolate milk. Not at all. So my children are now all grown up. But when my oldest son was about three, he did attend um, a daycare center, and he was one of very few kids of color in his daycare center. We lived in a community that was predominantly white, and he was the only black child in his particular group of three-year-olds. And when I picked him up from school, he told me that uh, one of his friends, one of his white friends, had told him that his skin was brown because he drank chocolate milk. So he asked me if this was true. And of course, I told him, no, it's not true. Your skin is brown because you have something in your skin called melanin. Everybody has some, but the more you have, the browner your skin is. So at your school, you are the kid with the most. So he was pleased, actually, seemed to be pleased to think that he had the most of something. But um, I was curious about the little boy who had come up with the theory. Now, let me just say that my son, who his name's Jonathan, Jonathan had um, been drinking chocolate milk. So it wasn't like it came out of nowhere. Uh, his friend Tommy had seen him drinking chocolate milk. And, you know, now Tommy might also have drunk some chocolate milk, but he assumed that you are what you eat and Jonathan's skin was brown because of that chocolate milk. It was a perfectly reasonable idea that Tommy had But it does speak to the fact that, one, he was noticing difference, two, was trying to understand what caused the difference, and three, um, didn't have any additional information. So after having talked to my son, I went to school the next day and asked the teacher um, of the class what strategies she was using to talk to kids about difference, imagining that these questions were coming up in this group of children. And she told me that the questions hadn't come up. Well, what was surprising about that, of course, was that, you know, I just had this conversation with my son and he reported the conversation he'd had with his friend. And so then that made me wonder whether the conversations were happening out of the earshot of the teacher, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe over the dress up corner or in the sandbox or, you know, at the snack table at a time maybe when she hadn't heard it. But it also made me wonder whether she, like some other adults I might have thought about, who had what I'm going to call selective inattention. Mm -hmm. You know, those moments when you don't quite know what to say, so you pretend you didn't hear and you just keep moving, um, and then it fades from your consciousness. 
it is certainly possible to talk about difference with children. And the ex- explanation I gave to Jonathan certainly could have been given to Tommy and other conversations could have come from that um, discussion. But many people are hesitant because one, they don't know what to say, or it feels like a loaded topic. But of course, it doesn't have to be. Right. So I remember you talking about the selective inattention. Can you also talk about the consequences of that? Well, I'm going to use another example, and this is a very common one too. And, um, and this is imagine this, imagine you are a white parent with a white child Mm -hmm. and you live in a largely white area. Mm -hmm. Um, and now you're in a grocery store, let's imagine. And maybe that child's three And maybe that child is observing that there's some dark-skinned people in the store, maybe for the first time, depending on, you know, where you live and what the population's like. But let's imagine that that child is seeing a dark-skinned person for the first time and says to the parent, Mommy, why is that man so dark? And says it in that loud three-year-old voice that can be heard all over the store. (laughs) And and most parents in that moment are going to do one thing, and that's, you know, they're going to try to hush the child because they're going to feel awkward or embarrassed. And the fact of the matter is, it's not, there's nothing wrong with the observation. It could have been worse. The child could have said something like, Mom, why is that man so dirty? And that would really have been embarrassing to the parent, but it is a common misperception. White children do sometimes confuse dark skin with dirty skin. And so what could that parent have said instead of hushing the child? Parent could have said something like, that man's skin is not dirty. It's as clean as yours. His skin is dark because he has something in his skin called melanin. Everybody has some, even me and you, we both do. And when we go out in the sun and our our skin turns brown from the sun, it's the melanin that makes us tan. And then the child might say, well, why, you know, is that person dark? And you could simply say something like, because people come in different colors, just like hair comes in different colors, eyes come in different colors, skin comes in different colors. It's just how the world is. Yeah. I had a situation where my son said, it was a, a larger person and said, oh my God, that person's so fat. And I got, I did the I did the shh. And then I said, you know, absolutely. I, I was mortified. And then I did say people come in all different shapes and sizes, but it took me a moment to regroup. I, I started to, I even saying, I still remember, like I started to sweat. I got embarrassed. And I remember exactly where I was. And the fact that I even got out, people come in different shapes and sizes. I was like, okay, that that's good. That's good. We'll talk about this later. But it was a moment of just being mortified and yes. clearly saying it. And then that person heard and I knew that person, it just, it was this snowball effect. So yes. I can relate to that story. Even now, I'm I'm getting hot again thinking of it. It's very common, but what it does convey when we respond in that, you know, hush, don't mention um, way is that we let the child know that this is not something we're supposed to talk about. And maybe even, you know, it's so bad we shouldn't even discuss it, you know. Um, and, and many people can remember, if you ask them to remember, if you, I do this with audiences a lot, I ask my audiences to think about an early race-related memory. And most people can go back to as old as, you know, four, five, six years old, remembering something. I never ask them to tell me what it is. I then just ask, one, how old they were, and it's often those ages. And then I ask them to tell me what feeling is attached And for a lot of people, it's an uncomfortable feeling. It could be confusion. It could be fear. It could be anger, sadness, embarrassment, shame, guilt. You know, there are lots of different feelings that people mention and sometimes happy feelings, but mostly uncomfortable ones. And then if you ask them, did you talk to anybody about it at the time that it occurred? Most people will tell you they did not, which if we think about the four and five and six-year-olds we know, they're pretty chatty. <laughs> they don't hold back much. They don't have those social filters yet. They, um, you know, just tell you whatever's on their minds. And yet 
around this topic, the topic of race, already by that age, a lot of people have learned this is not to be discussed. And that translates into adult behavior, adults who feel quite uncomfortable when asked to talk about race and actively avoiding the conversation. And of course, the problem there is you can't solve a problem you can't talk about. Absolutely. So I was reading one of your papers, the talking about race, learning about racism, the application of racial identity development theory in the classroom. Now, I know this is mainly for um, for the white students in your, in your class, but what I thought was really interesting is it seemed to help students understand the way in which racism operates in their own lives. And while I know it's about students, I think it can very much translate to parents. So we can see as parents ways in which racism operates in our own lives. Can you talk more about about that, because if we're aware of how it operates, that's going to be influencing. They can influence our children. So, if we're aware of it, it's like you said on the cross on the the walkway. If we're aware, we can walk away from it. Yes. So, you know, I taught um, at the college level for many years, and um, my course, the Psychology of Racism course, was one in which students would often take the class because they wanted to learn more about racism. But one of the things they discovered as a part of, you know, reading about it and better understanding what racism really is and how it operates was they began to see how their own lives had been shaped by it. Mm-hmm. For example, if it was a white student who'd grown up in an all-white neighborhood, she might have thought growing up that it was just a matter of choice who lived in her neighborhood, or maybe it was just, you know a byproduct of education or, you know, but not recognizing that many of the mostly or entirely white neighborhoods across the nation were built that way because they had racial covenants to not sell to black people um, at a time when such covenants were legal. And that the practice of maintaining segregated communities was a very intentional one not accidental at all, and shaped by policies and practices of the federal government in terms of who got loans and who was helped to buy a new house in the suburbs and who was being discriminated against and preventing um, access to those communities. Um, They might assume that the population of their school was just a function of the neighborhood, not understanding the policies and practices that kept uh, communities of color out of a school or limited the ways in which children of color were able to access the honors classes or the AP classes that even in a racially mixed school tend to be almost entirely white. And so those are just two examples, mm-hmm. but thinking about you know access to healthcare, thinking about um, treatment in the criminal justice system, you know, what happens if you are a, uh, white teenager caught with a little marijuana. Of course, marijuana has been decriminalized, but let's say cocaine. Um, And, you know, do you go to jail for a long time or do you get sent home with a note asking your parents to provide better supervision? You know, those are the kinds of experiences that students might connect to, but they never thought of as having been shaped by racism and how it operates in the society. And then we can also, as parents, show that to our children and say, you know, this is what's happening, um, you know, from your schools to your neighborhoods. Again, it's just another uh, teaching opportunity. So also in your paper, you talk about the sources of resistance. So again, I know it was focused on college students, but I really see a similar reasoning applied to parents um, when there's a hesitation in addressing race. Can you talk about those sources? Sure. Well, one source of resistance uh, about having the conversation we've talked a little bit about already, which Mm -hmm. is that we learn from an early age that, you know, the adults around us prefer us not to talk about it, right? We are encouraged not to have conversations about race or racism in our society. Even if we start to notice it, we are encouraged not to talk about it. But the other thing is that it's a very common um, belief in how our society operates, that we live in a meritocracy, meaning people get what they deserve, meaning that, you know, if you work hard and do the right thing, you will naturally reap the benefits of your effort. And the reality is racism prevents that. 
right? Um, racism interferes with people reaping the benefits of their effort. I mean, we can go all the way back to slavery, of course, where a lot of effort was being expended by enslaved people for which they received no benefit. Mm -hmm. But you don't have to go back that far to look at differential pay, to look at, um, you know, the New Deal. And here's a fact that a lot of people don't know, but I think it's worth mentioning. You know, when programs like Social Security were being created, um, Southern legislators didn't want Black people to have access to those Social Security benefits because having government help meant you were less dependent on those low-wage jobs that people were working whether that was sharecropping or something else. And so when the New Deal was being put into place and things like unemployment insurance and Social Security were being created, those safety net programs, as part of a compromise between Northern legislators and Southern legislators, the agreement was that certain occupations would be excluded. So it wasn't racially defined in a very literal way, but farm workers and domestic workers were um, excluded from those benefits. Right. So is there is an assumption, okay, we're not going to say that the black people are not going to get it, but we're assuming those are the jobs in which they're taking, therefore they're not going to get the benefit. Exactly. Right. It's funny. My husband and I had a conversation about, um, about a lot of this and he's a social worker. So they talk a lot about systemic racism and he was saying, it's not that the system's broken. It was actually set up this way to exactly. discriminate. It's like, it's not broken. This is what was intended. And exactly. looking at it that way was, um, was horrifying. So <laughs> we need to take the system down, rebuild it. And many of us need to, I keep going back to that, um, that, the cross, the walkway on the airport. A lot of us need to turn around and wake up and walk the other way because we're, as you said, we're going on this path because the system is just laid out for us. So we need that wow, this is really, my mind's spinning. So I'm sorry if I'm rambling on this. No, well, no, well, but your, your response to this new information is in fact, what can be a source of resistance because it's like, oh my God, all this stuff I didn't even know. How is it possible that I am a well-educated person and yet I never knew these things. And so for some people that is kind of shocking. And sometimes the response to that shocking, uh, feeling that feeling of, um, uh, I wish I knew I better. Know, <laughs> yes, that that feeling of you know feeling unsettled, right? Wishing I knew better, but that uncomfortable feeling that some that people often have sometimes leads them to say, "Stop telling me." Sometimes it leads people to say, "I need to know more. How can I learn more?" But sometimes, as they say, ignorance is bliss. If I didn't know, I didn't have to feel bad. Now that I know, I'm uncomfortable. If you would stop telling me, my discomfort would go away. And so that notion of, you know, kind of shoot the messenger, you know, don't make me think about this. Don't bring this up. You know, let's just go back to riding comfortably on that walkway Um, because it's uncomfortable to realize the ways in which this kind of unfairness was really baked into the system from the beginning. You're absolutely right. I, mean, I am a little embarrassed that I did not, this age, um, that I did not know more. And I'm glad at this point, at least I'm finding out <laughs> at some point. And hopefully, again, the reason for having this conversation is to help parents that may have not realized it. I'm putting myself in that category. I'll be totally honest. And then absolutely, to you're not help, alone. I, I, I suspect not. Um, and then hoping with that awareness to, again, help our children. So that actually brings me to, you mentioned strategies to talk to kids. Can we dive into that? How do we, and and I know those listening in my community have little littles like babies and toddlers, some older, my kids are six and nine. So can we talk about how we talk to kids about racism, especially as we've talked about, like, it can be uncomfortable. Like we may not know what to say. What are some strategies to help a new generation just do better? Yes. Well, certainly one of the great things that has changed over the last 20 years since the original publication of my book has just been the wealth of resources that are now available. Um, You know, certainly there are um, books that are written about social justice issues intended for young children. 
for example, even something as horrible as police shootings. You know, there's a great book written by three psychologists um, intended for reading with children from the ages of four through eight. Um, that book is titled Something Something ha- Something Bad Happened in Our Town. And um, it is written for parents to sit and read. And then there's discussion guide in the back, some pointers for parents for the conversation. So I use that to just say that there are more resources now available than there were um, in the past. But whether that's making sure you have children's books that are very diverse in terms of the representation, you know, the illustrations, the storylines, you can certainly read books that deal with historical events, whether that's the civil rights era or um, the period of slavery or other important moments in history involving people of color, but not even having to deal with those issues, but to just be able to see children of all backgrounds playing together, doing things together, um, humanizing the experience. One of the things that racism tends to do is dehumanize the marginalized group. And so helping children realize that we're all, you know, we all have parents who love us. We all um, have brothers and sisters uh, that we spend time with and play games with. And, you know, we don't all look the same, but we all have feelings and those feelings can be talked about. And um, so there's a kind of acceptance Mm -hmm. of others that can be fostered, but also to the to the particular question of talking about the ism, in this case, racism, you know, young children understand, understand fairness and unfairness. You know, even a three-year-old gets being treated unfairly. You know, if you've got a plate of cookies and one kid is getting two cookies and another kid is only getting one, they'll be quick to tell you that's not fair, right? So I just think of my kids, they're, I mean, they're a little older, but yeah, the unfair, he watched more TV than I watch and like the unfair. So yes, they they understand that. So that's a, that's a concept that children learn early. Right. And so you can talk about racism as a kind of unfairness, a systematic unfairness, you know, that it's unfair that one group of people is being given opportunities or goodies, cookies, right? More cookies. Um, because simply because of the group they belong to, simply because of their physical appearance. And another group is being denied those opportunities, is only getting not just, you know, one cookie, maybe just some cookie crumbs. Um, And that's not fair. And so when, now, unfortunately, there are so many examples that we see in the news. Um, You know, current events can be a starting point for a conversation You might not be talking about the news with a three-year-old, but you can certainly be reading books together, looking at pictures. And as the child gets older, you can certainly start to have conversations about what's fair and unfair or look for books that specifically address um, examples of racism that can be talked about. Yeah, I like the idea of books, especially because books tend to be, for a lot of families, something, it's like a ritual. We sit down, we read at night. And so that could just be worked into that. It doesn't have to be like, okay, now we're going to sit down and have a lesson about racism. It could just be more of another teachable moment kind of interwoven in. So it doesn't feel like they're back at school or they're being scolded or, or, or anything. Yes. I tell a story in my book, Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria? And there is a chapter that deals specifically with talking to young children. But I tell a story in that um, chapter about reading with um, one of my kids when he was about six or seven at the stage when, you know, he was, his own reading ability was getting to the point where he could read what we called in school chapter books. Mm -hmm. Right. And so um, we were reading a book together that I had read as a child and had enjoyed, you know, there was a whole series of books. Um, this series is called the Boxcar Children. I don't know if you, yes, I do. if you know about the Boxcar <laughs> Children, right? So, um, so I read all those books when I was a kid and he was reading um, those books too. And we were reading together one of the books and I noticed now for the listeners, you know, the Boxcar Children involve four 
four kids. They're all brothers and sisters and it's a white, you know, there's no kids of color in these stories, but the, um, there are two girls and two boys and they live with their orphaned and they live with their wealthy grandfather. And, you know, there's a series of mysteries that they solve. And we were reading one of these books and I noticed that repeatedly the girls were being treated differently from the boys in a way that I had not noticed when I was a kid, right? Mm -hmm. I don't remember noticing this when I was a kid, but as we were reading together, it would seem like every time the story was getting exciting, the boys would say, wait here, Violet. (laughs) You know, the girls would have to stay behind while the boys did the adventurous thing or the grandfather would buy the fishing poles for the brothers and no fishing poles for the girls. And I was bothered by this. And I said to my son, while we were reading, I said, you know, there's something about this book that's bothering me. And he asked me what, and I asked him if he knew what sexism was. He did not. And I said, well, sexism is when girls are being treated differently than boys just because they're girls. And I am noticing that in this book. And I pointed out the examples I'd seen. And I said, I don't just don't, I don't think that's fair. And he said to me, well, can we keep reading the book? (laughs) Like, you know, do we have to stop reading the book? And I said, no, we can keep reading the book. But I just wanted to point that out to you because, you know, it's a problem. And we continued to read. But what really I appreciated a few pages in my son said to me, mom, there's that stuff again. And he was starting to notice it and could name it. And so, um, though he didn't use the word sexism, he called it that stuff. Uh, I felt like I was helping him to be able to think critically about what he was seeing and to question. And in the same way, we can ask kids to question what they're seeing as it relates to racism and to begin to think about how to interrupt it. Like what could that grandfather have done differently? Yeah. This is so great. Like we're starting to look at ways that parents can start to change that narrative instead of just going along, step back. Oh, I'm noticing this. Oh, I noticed how was it in school? Did everyone, you know, like how is, how are people getting along? Are people connecting with each other? Kind of like when I remember in that interview you mentioned about your book was it's not that the black kids were sitting together. You said it was like the white kids were sitting together. It was kind of left the black kids alone. If I remember correctly on that. And so we can start to look at why people are removing themselves from other groups or isolating themselves. So opening up conversation that making yes yes absolutely and to just say a word about um you know you mentioned your son has a he's nine and he's got a good friend who is um black I think you said and um and one of the things that I hear sometimes from older kids teenagers they will talk about having had cross-racial friendships earlier like in elementary school but that then somehow those relationships started to shift mm. in middle school and or in high school. And sometimes in ways that they just didn't understand, like what happened, you know, like we were friends and then all of a sudden we weren't. And when you probe um, or if you talk to black kids, particularly those who are attending racially mixed, maybe even predominantly white schools, what you often will find is that something did happen. Um, but it didn't have to end. It didn't have to be friendship ending, but sometimes it is in part because of the silence of their white friends. For example, um, let's say you have, uh, you know, there are two kids, a white kid and a black kid and their friends, and they are out with some other kids, maybe less well-known. And maybe one of those other kids is, um, uses, uh, a racial slur or says something, offensive about the black kid. One would hope that the white friend would be an ally and speak up Mm -hmm. um, to say, you know, don't use that language or, you know, what's wrong with you? Or, you know what I mean? To just challenge the um, racist behavior of the other white kids in the group. But sometimes that's not what happens. Sometimes what what sometimes what happens is the white person is silent, maybe because, you know, they don't know what to say, or it's just very awkward. And, you know, they're just not prepared for that moment. But the black kid 
feels completely abandoned in that moment. Mm. And so, you know, they might not ever talk about it, but maybe after that, maybe the black kid is less wanting, less willing to hang out, you know, busy now. So, um, and they kind of drift apart. And if you were to ask that white kid, you know, 20 years later, what happened? They might say, you know, I don't know. We just kind of drifted apart. But if you ask the black kid what happened, they'll tell you exactly. You know, it was this moment, this thing happened. And after that, I didn't want to hang out anymore. Well, that would break my heart to see that because they're such good friends. So as again, as a parent, what, uh, what are the ways? So we're talking about making sure everyone understands equality, um, not not isolating people, uh, recognizing that the system is not fair to everyone. Are there other things that we can do as parents really to help break these walls down? And I guess I'm really struck because I would hate to see just on a basic level of like friendships that don't need to end, end, you know, and then that that large, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So, so what, how might that have that story ended differently? The story would end differently if the friend, the white friend, Exactly. Exactly. Um, I have, um, a good friend who, whose children are the same age as mine. So now they're all adults, but, um, she told a story about her son who is white, um, but was growing up in an anti-racist household with a mom who was an activist and very much, um, encouraging the speaking up of, you know, let's go together for the protest and we're going to make the sign for the Mm -hmm. Black Lives Matter and, you know, Mm -hmm. that kind of a parent. And um, her son took a bus to school. And when he came home one day, he was about seven years old, he got off the bus and he was quite upset. And so she asked him what was upsetting him. And he told her about being on the bus and watching some older kids you know, he's, you know, second grader, maybe they were fourth graders, some older kids who were um, picking on a child with a disability. So it wasn't about race in this case, but um, white children picking on a white child, but that white child had a disability and they were throwing little spitballs Mm -hmm. at the kid. And this seven-year-old was witnessing this behavior and was upset about it, but didn't really know what to do. They were bigger kids, older kids, you know, didn't know how to challenge it. And so when he got off the bus and was just telling his mom about what had happened, she was sympathetic and said, you know, I know that must've been really hard. And, you know, I know maybe you didn't know what to do. And he said, I didn't know what to do. So then she asked him, well, you know, well, what happened? She said, well, I just got up and went to sit next to him. Oh, that's nice. I thought that's such a, it's so moving to me, you know, but here's this seven-year-old figuring out what it means to be an ally. You yeah. know, I, I can at least sit think, here. Yeah, I'm sorry. No, I was just going to say, you know, I can at least sit here in solidarity with you. <laughs> you know, I can't make them stop, but maybe I can, you know, I don't have to leave you out there by yourself. It takes courage because I did, when my son and I were having these conversations and I brought up the situation of like you go into a store and he understood that. And it, his fun, his again, nine year old mind, he's like, well, if anything happened to him, I'm not going to say his friend's name, I would punch yeah. him in the face. And I'm like, oh, that's cute. You'd punch racism in the face. But like, I, I'm glad at nine he has that courage. I just hope that we can continue to bolster his confidence and his, and his belief in anti racism that should something happen that he has the confidence and the desire to stand up to this. Yeah. That's what, yeah. I, that's what I hope for. I just have one more, one more little question about the racism and then we'll start to tie things up. But one thing, so I feel like a lot of people are hearing this new information and it's kind of marinating. I know that sometimes I hear this from a lot of people to like, Oh, uncle so-and-so or great aunt so-and-so I can't bring this stuff up. I feel like now this year is probably not going to happen because we don't, we're not seeing each other, but for like holidays and like family, family happens, racist. I actually, I'd learned things I hadn't even heard of from some family members. I'm like, I don't even know what that slang means. It had to be explained to me. Um, apparently a little dimwitted I am on that. So what do you do when you're in these situations? Like my husband and I had a conversation, like we would take family members aside and be like, we, you know, that's not okay. It yeah. But what, is that the best, is that the best route? 
Well, you know, everybody's family is different and the natures of the relationships are different. And there may be some people you just decide, you know, I don't want to be in that person's company. It's just too toxic. But assuming you want to maintain the relationship and you want to be able to have that, you know, Thanksgiving meal together, um, and yet you don't want your children to be infected with those attitudes, Mm -hmm. um, it is important to be able to speak up about it. And so one strategy that I sometimes uh, offer to people, a kind of a very tactical method, is what I call the 3F method. By that I mean FFF. And the Fs stand for felt, found, feel. So let's imagine you are at the Thanksgiving table and, you know, Uncle Joe is getting ready to tell yet another racist joke or something like that. Um, you know, you might say, you know, Uncle Joe, I used to find those jokes funny. I felt that those jokes were funny and they didn't hurt anybody and they're relatively harmless. But I now find, or I have found out that actually they reinforce stereotypes and my kids have so many ways in which they can be exposed to negative attitudes about people that they don't really know that I really now feel that it's important for me to speak up about this when I hear it. So I really would appreciate, you know, if you wouldn't tell those jokes when we're here. Oh, I love that. The three F's, I wrote it down. I'll make sure I put it in the show notes. (laughs) Felt, found, feel. That's perfect. All right, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, you've been a parent, you've been around kids. If you have one piece of advice or a tip you'd like to offer new or expectant parents, we'll be right back. Okay, so we're back. One tip or piece of advice you would like to offer new or expectant parents? Well, one thing I know about expectant parents and probably new parents too is that certainly I was this way. We read a lot, right? You know, you're reading about, you know, the milestones month by month and you know, what do I need to know before the baby comes and what am I going to do after and how am I going to get her to sleep through the night or, you know, all of those things, right? We're educating ourselves constantly so that we can um, be the best parents we can possibly be. And I think in the same way, one tip or piece of advice I would say is that if this conversation represents new learning for you, then do some reading, you know, watch some videos, take the time to start to educate yourself because you won't be able to really help your children with these subjects unless you get a little deeper in your own understanding. The good news is there's lots to read. There's lots to read, lots of videos to watch. Um, I have a website. uh, It's beverlydanieltatum.com. You can find lots of my videos and links to books and other reading material on my website, including my TEDx talk in which I talk about, you know, why about the chocolate milk story, right? (laughs) You can find that a YouTube uh, video of that as well. But I think that is really the key thing. Education is important. Education should lead to action. So, you know, I don't want to say just educate yourself and then be silent. That won't work. But you have to um, deepen your understanding, become more aware so that you can translate that into effective action. Oh, that's so perfect. And yes, I watched your TEDx. I watched uh, several of the other two videos. I've read some of your stuff. I am so excited to read your new book. Although I really still think I might get the older, is the older version still out? I'd love sure, to do a little cross comparison to see the growth and change from the well, book. Well, I can tell you, yes. I mean, so yes, if you go to, um, Amazon or some other bookseller, you might be able to find the, earlier version. You can tell the difference because the original version has a white cover with brown accents and the 2017 version has a black cover with yellow accents. Um, And it's about, the new version is about a hundred plus pages longer. So there's a lot of new content. Some of it is almost exactly the same. You'll find the, the chapter on talking to young children has changed very little. There's some new resource material, but um, those two chapters are probably pretty close to identical. But a lot of the other chapters have been uh, dramatically updated and in some cases completely rewritten to reflect changes in our society. Well, I can't thank you enough for the work that you do and the time you've given me today. It's been such a great conversation. I've really 
been taking in what you're saying and I'm excited to take further action in my life and with my children's lives. So thank you. Well, thanks so much for your efforts here to educate your audience. Thanks. Much appreciated. Have a great day. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. This has been an episode of Yoga Birth Babies, produced by Prenatal Yoga Center. You can catch us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Periscope. I'm Deb Flaschenberg. Thanks for listening. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.